especially related to practice or things they've gone through, to be able to ask them, either to Joseph or to myself. Please. Uh, normally when we talk about effort, we mean expending energy deliberately and sometimes painfully in order to achieve an end. And uh, that seems to be a, an adjunct of greed. But uh, here, we're urged to make an effort. And obviously we're not supposed to be sitting through hours of silent agony or earnestly walking three or four yards in an hour. I think something that would be helpful to look at very carefully in your practice is to what degree there's a desire to get something. And this getting, the getting mind, sometimes works in an extremely subtle way. Sometimes it's very obvious and very gross, that is a major desire, reaching out for something. But often in the practice, and this is all tied into right effort, it can be even the slightest movement of reaching for something, reaching for some state or some experience that's different from the experience that we're having. The effort that you're talking about associated with greed is an effort in the service of getting. The right effort in practice is not getting anything. It's not the reaching out for anything at all. Rather, it's the settling back and opening. And that's a very different movement of mind. One is a reaching, a wanting, a desiring, a grasping, an avoiding of what's actually present, which is what's feeding that that getting mind. That's one side. The other possibility, which is what is being cultivated in the practice, is letting go of that wanting or getting, settling back into the moment, settling back into what's already there. And there's a tremendous sense of relief in that. Because we see that each moment is complete, that there's no state or no experience outside of the moment which we need to get, which we need to want. So in this sense, right effort, is the energy to be awake in the moment. And sometimes we're there and sometimes we're not. And when we're not, to again settle back and open up. Do you have a sense of the difference between the reaching out and the settling back? Because that's a, that's a very um, crucial element 
in the development of the practice. I think one of the, just one footnote, What is it that we never want? What is it that we never have that getting mind for? It's what we already have. And so you see how when we settle back into what we already have, that is exactly the antidote or the undercutting of the mind which is reaching or grasping. I just finished this last sitting and as I opened my eyes and said to myself, well, that was, that was half decent. <laughs> <laughs> you said that mindfully to I, yourself? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I think that that's uh, the wrong approach. <laughs> it's obviously judging. But how, how do I look at my practice without judging it, but uh, giving myself some sense of how I'm, how I'm doing? Or is that something to be asking myself? There's no particular need to judge the practice because it's going. And it goes through so many ups and downs and twists and turns that your judgment probably is going to be wrong anyway. <laughs> so it's not particularly helpful. However, they're going to come, just as it came in that comment. Well, this was a half-decent sitting. <laughs> That does not have to become a problem. If there's the sitting and then that thought comes into the mind and you're as mindful of that thought as of the other things in the sitting, the thought comes, that was a half-decent sitting, it goes, there's no problem. Be watchful of trying to get into a dialogue about it. There's no need to engage in the thought. It's rather just to see it as another object to see it arise and pass away, and the practice continues. Related to that, how do you skillfully evaluate your balance? You know, you're talking about Jeff. Um, how do you know when, how do you judge when you have enough concentration after you have effort? The question is how to judge then balance in your practice, which as you become more independent and do more practices and necessary or a helpful, uh, a helpful thing to work with. There are, there are a couple of crucial elements in it. One is to know when you're being mindful and when you're not. Where, well, I just ate a meal and I wasn't there. Not as a question of evaluation with judgment, but simply an observation of it. And then again, a settling back to re-commit uh, re yourself, to, to re-focus on what's happening in your experience. So one's the simple observation of when you're present and when you're not. And when you're not, then again, to come back. The second one is a useful balance of energy and concentration. 
If you find that you're sleepy or dull a lot, the first things you can simply note it and be aware of dullness or sleepiness. If it persists, then walk more. If you find that you are um, agitated or, or restless or that there's a lot of energy and not so settled, sit down, do some long sittings, do something quieter so that um, that quality of energy and of concentration come more into balance. Doesn't require a lot of thought or a lot of evaluation that the practice is good or that it's not good. It's like figuring out when you go to bed. You don't have to make a, a long analysis or think, well, this is better than that time for these reasons or better than yesterday or the day before. It's simply sensing when it's time to go to bed. And here it's possible to sense if you have, uh, if you have a lot of restlessness, then that which will, beside noting it, will help you get a little calmer. Or if you find there's a lot of dullness, then to do something simple like walking as a way to bring a bit more energy. Keep it simple. I'd just like to add something to this question of effort and sort of seeing, judging the practice. I don't know, in a talk Sharon gave some weeks ago, she mentioned the story of my first garden and you know, pulling up the carrot. <laughs> I carried over that pattern also when I started practicing with Meninjaji, and I was kind of always rushing to Meninjaji, you know, how am I doing, and, and how can I be doing it better? And he would just laugh and send me back. <laughs> and so what I came to after, after doing that many times, I came to, for myself, an understanding of how I could apply right effort without getting involved in this constant uh, evaluation. And that was the sense that my effort was to put in the time. Well, I was going to put in the hours. I was going to sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. And that was the effort that I could do. And everything else was a surrender to the Dharma. That is, within that form, the, the simplest possible form of simply sitting and walking, whatever came. And some of the sittings would be clear and some wouldn't be so clear, and I would just keep going. And it, it eliminated a lot, of, um, a lot of these kind of nagging judgments and evaluations and how am I doing. And there was a forward momentum which came simply from putting in the hours. So that if, if that appeals to you, it makes it very simple. Your job becomes very simple. You know, just put in your time. Uh, rather than being so identified now with the thought content, and rather than being so identified with body sensation, it seems like I'm becoming more identified with mindfulness and ascribe some self to mindfulness rather than seeing mindfulness as a, uh, a function, a mental function. Can you well, one thing that you can do with that, because it happens as your practice goes along, you observe body sensations, and they change a lot, and you realize you can't be those. It gets a bit clearer that you're not the body. And then you observe your emotions, and they come in waves, and they change, and you're your mindful and aware of them, 
And if you look for a while, you realize you can't be those, even though in certain moments you may feel angry or sad or happy. When you look for a while, you see how much they change and that they cannot be you. And then the thoughts, and you start to see after a bit how conditioned they are. They arise, certain conditions, for a little while and they pass away, out of your control, usually not chosen. Very rarely do we choose them. You say, well, that can't be me, so who am I? I must be, then I'm the one who's watching, or I'm the person being aware. One thing you can do with that, there are two, two things to observe. If there's that thought, you can simply note that's the thought, thinking that I'm the one who's being aware. And see when there isn't thought, if that same sense of yourself is there. Does that make sense to you? If there's the thought. If there's the thoughts the thought will say, now I'm being mindful, or now he's really aware. And you note what's going on in that moment is actually thinking. The other is, pay attention to the quality of mindfulness itself. See when it's strong, when there's a lot of it, when it's frequent, see when it's not. See when there's being present, see when there's being lost. And as you pay attention to it, its nature of being impermanent and being selfless reveals itself simply through the power of your attention to it. Another component which we've talked about uh, before which will help the disidentification process with the mind and all the mental factors um, is the attention to what we described as the dual simultaneous process. You know, of the, of the materiality of the physical body and the concurrent knowing or consciousness that goes with it. And the last time we talked about it in terms of the image of the robot moving and at the same time as the movement is the knowing. The more attention is, that's paid to those two processes happening simultaneously it becomes increasingly clear that both the consciousness or the knowing and all of the mind factors that come with it, like mindfulness and concentration and effort and all the rest, the impersonality of all of them become very clear through attention to those two aspects of experience. The materiality of the physical body, which doesn't know anything, and the concurrent, simultaneous process of knowing that goes with it. So it's a reminder for you to continue looking at that. Um, I think my question has to do with the nature of thought. Um, I usually think that thought is words. And I noticed that most of my childhood thought was involved in obsessional use of words, of counting things and enumerating them and naming them and all of that. And I found a lot of the practice then involved using words in the same way. Then there were the whole long periods of time in which words absolutely disappeared and there was no naming and something else was going on that was unrecognizable to the, the, the word-thinking mind. And it's another kind of thing. Could you comment on that split and what those two things are? What is it? 
I don't know. One of them is wording, a, a thinking mind that involves words, and another one is a thinking mind that has no words at all. And when I'm in the one that has no words at all, I'm wondering, am I really doing the job? Because somehow it's not, it's not specific the way the word mind goes. Right. <laughs> I, think I, I think I got it. Because we're so used to the thinking, the word thinking mind, that's so much the domain of our mental activity, that often when the mind becomes silent, there is that doubt and question, you know, is there really awareness or wakefulness at this time? There, there could very well be, and in fact, in the silent mind, the, the wakefulness gets incredibly strong, there is also the possibility that in that silent mind you're going to sleep. <laughs> And so that has to be checked out. One way of checking it is in the silence to just go back briefly to the noting, to the use of words, to see whether or not you're actually aware and attentive. If you find that you can do it, if you find that you can actually note your experience, That means that in the silence you are aware and wakeful, and you could again drop the noting if it's not, if it's not helping. But it's a check for you. The, the fourth of the hindrances is, um, is actually restlessness related to that. So the relationship between um, excitedness or agitation and excitedness as interest. One of the books I read, Excitedness and Guilt. Uh-huh. I don't think that's, the, that's a very good translation of it, but in any case, your question is. There comes, as you, as you do the practice, and I think people will have experienced it at times in their sitting or walking here, there comes among the qualities that, that grow by being more in the moment, a quality of interest, a quality of, of caring or of, of uh, liveliness of mind, of noticing, of seeing. And at times there can be with that um, a real sense of excitement or appreciation. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. The quality of restlessness or the quality of agitation um, differs from that in two ways. One is that in general the mind is more caught up or identified in the restlessness or the agitation than in the state of interest or uh, investigation. Secondly, the restlessness usually is associated with lots of thinking, whereas the useful kind of investigation or the useful, um, the useful interest or examination, which can also be exciting in its way, in the practice is a silent one in which you're able to observe. You observe a sunset or a bird or the movement of mind or energy patterns in the body or some feeling, sense of joy, or whatever happens to come. It's a 
care and, and enthusiasm in observation, but it's not a lot of reflection and agitation and worry about. It doesn't contain a lot of past and future. It's being with that without a lot of thought. Whereas the, the state of restlessness, if you watch, you'll see them as different qualities. When that arises, there's generally a lot of thought, and it's related to past and future, and a sense of agitation. And either, both of them are things that you can simply observe as they arise in your practice. The, the sense of, it's called dhamma-vichaya, or investigation into the nature of things, which grows as you sit, you start to see body and mind or consciousness or feelings and how they work. It's a very beautiful sense. It's also possible, like mindfulness or the other things which arise, that you can get attached or identified even with that one. So you can watch it as it arises when it's there and notice when it's not. Can I, can I add something there? There's a defilement the Buddha called nandi, means delighting, which is a bridge between that investigation and the excitability. So when you're really keenly investigating, you're getting a lot of joy, but it can shift into taking, into delighting in things, which is a defilement. It's a very subtle point. Hmm. And then it shifts into restlessness. So that, that's the bridge between those two states that she said. I think you'll notice if you have, if you have a sense of interest or excitement, that if there comes then um, a grasping at it, look at what I've got, or trying to hold it, then that will move you into another state. So you can just watch that process. I was uh, interested in what Joseph was talking about with the, um, the, 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 the concurrent knowing of physical movements. Is there some way that you can work with that while Try moving without knowing. <laughs> and see what happens. It might reveal the knowing very clearly. I just thought of that, so. <laughs> Let me know how it works. <laughs> But as I, as I feel it, it feels actually like you would get a very clear sense then. That the each moment of experience contains that 
fact or a feeling, which means that each moment is either pleasant, unpleasant, or, ne or neutral, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. The experience is felt as being pleasant or unpleasant as the result of some past action, which is why two different people experiencing the same thing, one could experience it with a very happy feeling, another person could experience it with a very unhappy feeling. And that's the karmic result of some action in the past. I'm not quite sure what you mean by working on it. Well, I just wondered if that's the part of the process that's happening that um, feelings are sort of in everything that I'm doing and therefore being mindful is, is perhaps um, affecting my karma. Oh, totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah, no, to than, um, as far as uh, being mindful of thought or... Okay, we, you may be using feeling in a, in a slightly different way. In this use of the word feeling, it's not used in the general sense in English of emotion or mood. It's used in a very precise Abhidhamma way of meaning the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality, in each moment's experience. And so a thought, too, has a feeling component. We have a thought, and the thought is either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither. Right. Uh, the reason it's so important is that it's exactly that component of feeling which is conditioning our mind to create and recreate endlessly new karma. It's because of feeling, it's because of the pleasantness that we reach out and hold on. And it's because of unpleasant feeling that we avoid. Pay attention to when there's a grasping in the mind, when there's a wanting, a getting. Right? When you experience that, even if it's in the middle or after it's over, at whatever point you become aware that the mind is doing that. investigate or see very carefully how the, what the mind is reaching for is the pleasantness of that object, is the pleasant component. It's not particularly the object itself, it's because it's pleasant. In the same way, when, when you're going along and you're feeling some kind of struggle or resistance, where there's a real fight going on for whatever reason, if you pay attention and drop back, drop back into what, what's happening, you will probably find that there's an unpleasant feeling associated with whatever the experience happens to be. Right. And it's that unpleasantness which is conditioning the avoidance or the resistance. And so we're really just moved back and forth in our lives you know, in this very conditioned way. Pleasant reach out, unpleasant avoid. The mindfulness totally restructures our relationship to that. Makes it possible to be equally and impartially open. Pleasantness comes, unpleasantness comes. And the mind stays the mind stays totally unmoved. So there's tremendous freedom in that. Thank you.
that in practice, how can we get to deeper levels of experience um, with feeling and how that's associated with the dependent origination. It's, it's in a sense uh, getting to the deeper levels of, um, of your feelings in the practice and not get caught up in the storyline. One, one way which Joseph is just suggesting is that you begin to pay attention to the pleasant or neutral or unpleasant quality, to the feeling of each moment's experience. If you look as you sit and walk and pay attention to what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's neutral, you'll also see the next link, which is grasping the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant. If you want to understand the cycle of dependent origination or how things create new karma, the best way in practice is to take it one little piece at a time. You can notice how there's contact and then based on sense contact there's feelings which arise. You can notice the feelings and then the reaction to the feelings. And those are the most important places because it's just at the link of feeling in the cycle of dependent origination that it's possible to free ourselves or break ourselves from that conditioning of, of grasping or resisting. It doesn't have to be that your experience changes or gets deeper or more silent or some special experience as much as focusing your attention on that quality of feeling and then the, the, the next moment, the reaction of grasping or pushing it away or just seeing it with mindfulness. Or if you want to investigate a little before feeling to notice contact and then see out of the contact they're seeing or hearing or sensing in the body or thought and then see the feeling which arises. There's contact and feeling. And by observing it in very simple ways like that, you can begin to see how those elements are operating in your experience. I didn't get that. Well, I, I really understand, you know, about the contact uh, of an object and bringing the feeling together. You know, being able to, to look at it, observe it, um, gain some insight. One of the problems I have is that I try to bring in the knowing. Yeah, that gets too complicated. Contact feeling level as a as a suggestion in terms of working with it, often, I mean, this is a very quick process. And so, mostly we miss it. One of the ways I've found of beginning to catch it a little bit is working backwards after having realized that I missed it you know, and was lost, particularly at times of a strong reaction, that is a strong reaction of aversion or a strong reaction of being lost in the experience, then working backwards to see how it happened. As a concrete example, there was, in one of my sitting times, there was this recurring obsessive desire fantasy that just kept coming again and again and again. 
And it took some time to kind of plug into this way of looking at it. And then I became, after, after having been lost in it, right, for many times, I worked backwards and I saw, went back to the initial contact with the object, which in this case was a visual image. And so I got very clear just how that object arose in the mind, that image, and saw in that moment, in, connected, um, along with that image, was this feeling of pleasantness. And that that's what my mind kept going for. When I saw that, clearly, it had an amazing power to cut the obsessive quality. It's just like, because the mind saw what was feeding it. Um, this is by way of saying, don't be discouraged if you find that you're you know, lost in things again and again. That's a gift to you. To, that's an opportunity to say, okay, let me kind of work back and see how this process is happening. And in that, you can, tr you can trace these links pretty carefully. No, just no, just to the last. <laughs> the last one will suffice. What is what's the factor that uh, conditions intention? Is it is it the feeling quality that then gives rise to an intention? I think it could be. It's a number. It's a number of different. It could be any. It, it could be skillful. In other words, intention could be, could be motivated by, conditioned by wisdom, by compassion, by greed, by anger. But if, if, if the feeling is always present, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, I, I don't know, I often just wondered if it was that feeling quality, if it's always present, that, that, that conditions... When there's not mindfulness. When mindfulness isn't present, then that feeling conditions... The, the grasping for the pleasant, the, the avoidance of the unpleasant. If mindfulness is present of the feeling, then it's, it's like a clear sky, and the clouds are simply passing through it. Mm -hmm. So intention can give, can give rise from really a skillful thought about oh, that. Oh, sure. Yeah, without, sure. Mm -hmm. It seems like uh, that there are different uh, energies maybe. Uh, that maybe are associated with the body or the mind specifically, um, and that they affect the quality of mindfulness. And I was wondering if uh, if that if that's just a so what? Okay, that, that's the energy that's happening now, or if some energies seem to be more conducive to mindfulness instead of trying to get a feel for that. Or what What do you mean by energies? Can you say a little more? An example. It seems like there might be a, a, a kind of mindfulness that um, is more kind of conceptual, and, and uh, it, it's kind of more spontaneous. I mean, uh, impulsive or something. It's like you're aware of what you're doing, but it's kind of uh, mental. You know, it's like 
you, you see that you're reaching, but you're kind of like not on top of it. And then there seems to be another kind that's just sort of really laid back in the body. And it could come up and you could do it or not. But, but sometimes it seems like that, that one kind is so strong, that, that sort of middle kind, and it seems, seems to also come up when there's a desire to practice a certain way or to see a certain thing or something. I think I understand. Go ahead and try. <laughs> um, one of the the greatest um, obstacles or dangers in practice is to have the idea, and I don't particularly mean the thought idea, but just to have the sense that there are certain, certain kinds of energy experience, and certain experiences of how our energy is manifesting, which are outside the field of mindfulness. Because often we get attached to an idea of mindfulness manifesting in a particular way that is clear and light and bright and effortless and joyful and <laughs> all those other things. And so then when our energy is not like that, when our energy is dull and heavy and <laughs> contracted, the tendency is to think that the mindfulness is not happening right now and putting all this effort into making it light and bright and tingly and whatever. What's very interesting is to see that, and this goes back again to the last question, what's preventing the, the mindful opening to that kind of heavy, dull, you know, yucky energy is the fact that it's more or less unpleasant. And so there's either a subtle or very strong avoidance of it, or reluctance to realize that the mindfulness can encompass or embrace that state as well. I don't know if you followed that. It, what for me was a very powerful teaching in that and I can't remember what I mentioned to the whole group or not, is some years ago we visited a friend, the mother of a friend of ours who was dying, and she had cancer throughout the body. And I visited her a couple of times, um, and as it progressed, the whole body chemistry changed. And as most of you know, when you change body chemistry, the consciousness change, changes quite a bit. If there's a strong attachment to experience staying a certain way, then that whole experience right, that she went through and that we all have gone through at different times is put outside the field of mindfulness. I can't be mindful now because this is happening. Instead of practicing the ability 
to make the mindfulness absolutely all-encompassing. So whatever energy is manifesting, sometimes it'll be very precise and very clear, and sometimes you'll have to make the mindfulness not with that precise, you know, sparkling quality, but just very broad, very wide, so that the whole field of heaviness could be encompassed. There's also a, a, a pattern that happens for some people. When you practice and there comes a pleasant state where you're alert or more aware or it seems easier somehow, often there's a kind of uh, observation of what were the conditions that brought me to that state while I sat in this way and the desire to get it back. And so you can come in and for the next sitting kind of, well, I tipped my head last time <laughs> and um, I did some fast walking right before and you can kind of mold your practice trying to imitate, you know, or I sat for two hours and I didn't move and I did this in order to try and recreate what you took to be the right kind of mindfulness or an experience that you liked again is really what it was. It was pleasant or it, it seemed like the good experience to you. And so it's not to try and take what feels like an intense kind of mindfulness or a relaxed kind of mindfulness, not to fix it or to try and find those conditions and recreate them to have it happen again. I'm really re-saying what Joseph did, but simply to be with your experience, however it is pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes very focused, sometimes foggy, sometimes uh, more neutral, and simply pay attention to that as it happens to you, rather than thinking that mindfulness is some state. It's not a state, it's not something that you can get and then imitate. It's simply being with what's here in a moment and seeing it clearly. And so both those things and all the others that you described can be observed or work with, with mindfulness. I wonder about because I've heard you say similar things to Dr. that shifts the idea. But sometimes it seems a little bit like there might be a choice on what kind of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. <laughs> really, if, if there's a choice. In terms of the <laughs> mindfulness itself, if you really pay attention to whatever your experience is, it doesn't really matter. Because if you look at it, every experience teaches you the same thing, whether it's a thought, or a sight, or a sound, or a taste, or a feeling. If you look, it teaches you impermanence. It teaches you insubstantiality. It can't be grasped. It teaches you unsatisfactoriness, that there's no way to rest or find satisfaction in it. Each experience, if you observe it, is one that teaches the Dharma. 
Yeah, I, there's just one other corner, which I think you're, you're raising. It's an important one. When the Buddha talked of right effort in the, when you read in the sutras, he talked of the, the cultivation of wholesome factors and the abandoning of unwholesome factors. The reason that that's not emphasized, that particular formulation is not emphasized so much in the talks is because mindfulness takes care of that. In other words, mindfulness has the power, one of the potencies of mindfulness is that it acts as a magnet for all the other factors of enlightenment. And so when we're, when we're mindful, all those other wholesome factors come. But in that kind of consideration that you raised, in other words, how to direct or how to choose which direction, it is to go in the direction of greater concentration, you know, and greater attention, and greater interest, and greater investigation. Yeah, mindfulness will do that anyway, but that's just, that could be the context for your understanding. Last question, please. That's where we started. What exactly is the mind? <laughs> 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 I mean, as I understand from what you talk about, we're talking about the cognitive faculty, which is completely colorless, completely untainted, and which is only present when some kind of sense impression is occurring. More interesting when the when it isn't occurring, the mind isn't. It seems a very odd idea to me. Because <laughs> 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 normally when we talk about mind, we mean the very opposite to that. We mean the bundle of ideas and memories, which is tantamount to talk about the ego. Again, it's like effort and effort in the practice, mind and mind in the practice. Two completely different things. Uh, could you really speak and tell us exactly? <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> you have been looking at it for a while, haven't you? In the in the description in the either the Abhidhamma or the Five Aggregates, which explains very precisely what this usage of the word mind is. It has four parts. There are five aggregates which make up our being or our experience. The first of them is physicality or, or rupa, um, the material elements. And the other four make up what we call mind. One of them one of the elements is feeling, a pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant quality to experience. The second is perception or recognition of what an object is in the moment. The third is called sankara, and it includes volition or impulses and all the other mental qualities of greed or wisdom or compassion or hatred, all the qualities that, that arise in the mind, mental factors in the moment that determine that moment's experience. And the last of them is consciousness, which is the knowing faculty. In each moment there is a, an object and the knowing of that object, 
and then a series of mental factors, including feeling, perception, and other ones. The word mind that includes both consciousness, that which knows the object, and this array of mental qualities or mental factors that come together with the consciousness and determine how we relate to that object. Pleasant, unpleasant, grasping, wise, wisdom, love, all different mental factors. So it's consciousness and mental factors together make up mind. Does that help? Yes, it does. But saying that, um, the mind is there it's conditioned by physicality but not limited by it so that a sixth sense door, they're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, those are the ones through the body. There's the sense door of the mind which thinks or sees images or pictures or, or mental feelings, and that's not limited by or to the body. And there are, as well in the Buddhist psychology, realms which are described which are realms only of mind without the physical senses existing. I don't know the, how, how your question applies to your practice, or if it does, if there's some useful way. Well, yes, it's a practice, really, you're going to be mindful. Can I just say something on that? Directly on that? Um, I've lost exactly the words you used, but you said something like that mind was the, the knowing faculty that which knew. And, or something similar to that. I can't, can't, that's often the way mind is defined. And that doesn't ever seem to me a very helpful way of saying it. It seems more useful to say that mind is the knowing. You know, because when you say mind, is the faculty that knows. It seems to apply something which does something. Whereas if you just say mind is the faculty of knowing, it sort of disposes of this illusory thing that people look for. It seems, it seems to be much more helpful. Uh, that's good. And maybe in closing, to... suggest another model or another description of mind. And the purpose of doing it is so that we don't form a cons an attachment to any one model or concept, losing sight in the attachment to the model of what the purpose of the mindfulness is. So, for example, the, the model that's very traditional in the Theravada teachings, and which we've talked about a lot, is, as Manindra expressed, 
consciousness arising in each moment with an object, and if there's no object, there's no consciousness. And so it's, it's just this momentary process arising and passing dependent upon the conditions for it to arise. When we see that, when we experience it in that way, we see that there's nothing to hold on to there, there's nothing to identify with because it's arising and passing you know, trillions of time an instant. The balance that comes out of not identifying with it, out of surrendering to this flow of knowing an object, the flow of experience, brings the mind to a state of balance when there's, where there's no movement of reaching out or pushing away to where we go beyond this process of consciousness and object. Because right now, in a, in a quite deep sense, it's as if we're prisoners of knowing. It's like every moment, there's knowing of something else. There's knowing of a sight or a sound or a thought or an emotion. And it's like there's no... We're kind of caged in the knowing. And we keep, we keep ourselves imprisoned in that way. Through our attachment, through our resistance. As the mind comes to a place of balance, of not reaching out, not pushing away, just there with the arising and passing of experience, out of that balance, the mind stops. And in that stopping is another whole domain outside of knowing, outside of this process of consciousness continually arising and passing away. So that's one model. Another model, which I've also found helpful, is found more in the Mahayana teachings. And it's the image of the mind being like space, like vast space. And objects are simply arising and passing within this space of mind. Thoughts come and sounds and sensations. It's like the mind like a big sky. But this also is for the purpose of bringing the mind to balance. When, when we make our minds like space and simply allow all objects impartially to arise and pass within it, like everything gets very expansive, very open, very still, the unmoving space, the unmoving sky in which everything's happening, just as with the first model, in this description also, the mind comes to balance, and it's as if, out of that balance, the sky or the space is punctured to come to the absence of space, which is the same thing as in the other model, is the mind stopping. So I just say this so that we don't lose sight, we don't get so attached to a model that we forget actually what we're doing here, which is to, which, whichever model serves or suits, 
to allow the mind to come to a perfect balance. And perfect balance means settling back, opening up, being there in each moment of experience, and deconditioning the habit of reaching out, of avoiding, of pushing away. That's what we're practicing. We're practicing that balance. Because out of that balance, we go beyond conditioning. We go beyond consciousness. We go beyond knowing. And that's why every moment is equally valuable. Every moment of the day is just another opportunity, it's another gift to practice that balance. In, the, in that regard, we all wanted to encourage you very much to use this time now. There, there are basically three, three and a half weeks left of intensive practice. And it's just you know, this huge, long three-month course. And suddenly, this is a fantastic time. I mean, you've all put in so much effort and work, and it's wonderful. There's, there's a tremendously powerful field which you've, which you've all created for yourselves. Use these last few weeks in as careful and caring a way as possible. One thing that will help not only you, but everybody else, is to re affirm your commitment to silence. Just it's starting to get a little woozy. <laughs> it's very helpful. Talking is one of the biggest energy leaks. You know, and you, all this time has been spent to build up the momentum and the energy of practice. You don't want to kind of let it leak out. And so not only for yourself, also for everybody else's consideration, please, please stay silent and keep the practice going as really with tremendous care. And this, is, this, is, this is a time for caring. Having been away for a week and coming back and sitting in the hall, it is totally wonderful. It's so nice here. <laughs> Enjoy it. Good, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.